everyone. Welcome back to the More Money Podcast. This is episode 370 of the show, and I'm your host, Jessica Morehouse. Welcome back. I'm so excited to share this episode with you because, as you know, if you're a longtime listener, you know that I have a bias towards passive investing, and I'm not a big fan of active investing. And to kind of talk more about this and really present the data, the the facts, the information, the numbers. This is why I needed to invite my next guests on the show because they really are experts at exactly this. I've got Anu Gonti and Joseph Nelson on the show. They are both senior directors of index investment strategy at S&P Dow Jones Indices. And we are going to go through some of the latest reports. They are constantly coming out with new information, new facts, really to showcase whether active management, you know, does it ever beat passive management or does it ever beat the market. There are some interesting stats that we're uh, going to go into. And honestly, I, I highly recommend going to the website. I will include it in the show notes for this episode, but it is on the smpglobal.com website. Um, and there's a specific landing page for Spiva. And you can see, you know, how uh, these actively managed uh, funds and portfolio managers are doing compared to the overall market in not just, you know, the US and Canada, but other countries like Mexico, Brazil, Australia, Australia, India, Japan, they've got it all. A lot of important data. And not only that, a lot of great educational resources. Free, 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 and really uh, well laid out and thought out. So highly recommend you checking that out after listening to this episode. So we've got a lot of great stuff to get into. So let's get right into it. Let's get to that interview with Anu and Joseph. Welcome to the More Money Podcast, Anu and Joseph. I'm so excited to have you on the show and to talk about something I've actually never talked about on the podcast, so I'm really, really excited about it, which is Spiva. So let's dive right in. And Joe, I want to start with you. Um, and and I'll, first, too, I'm going to you know get you to kind of introduce yourselves a little bit to so people can understand um, kind of your connection to Spiva. But Joe, do you want to kind of share a little bit about yourself and, and then we'll kind of dive into what exactly Spiva is. Sure. Thanks, uh, Jessica, for having us on. Uh, so I'm part of the index investment strategy team here at S&P Dow Jones Indices, along with my colleague, Anu. And uh, we're the team responsible for, among other things, writing the Spiva reports, which we can talk about in a few minutes. But mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's I'll say Spiva has been a part of my professional life for quite a while, even before I was at uh, S&P. So, you know, it's something I appreciate as, as a consumer and also now as a producer. And before we, you know, really get into it, um, Anya, did you want to uh, introduce yourself? Yes, no, happy to. It's so nice to be here, Jessica. I'm Anu Ganti, and I've been at S&P Dow Jones Indices uh, starting the, the seventh year now. So, so time flies. And it's been fascinating to, to observe uh, the Spiba franchise grow and, and the growth of indexing, index investing over the past decade. And, and prior to my experience at S&P, I used to be a portfolio manager uh, in emerging market equities and was actually a client of S&P's. Uh, so it's very interesting to, to be a part of the, the indexing world uh, because it's very exciting times right now. So glad to be here. I'm well. I'm excited to have you both, and excited to dive into this topic. So let's let's first, you know, uh, Joe, if you, you wouldn't mind, kind of share a little bit about what exactly Spiva is, because you know, even though I've been familiar with it, and I try to tell as many people as I can to check this, um, you know, uh, really great resource. What exactly is it for people who aren't familiar? 
Sure. So SPIVA is an acronym for S&P Indices versus Active. SPIVA mm-hmm. kind of rolls off the tongue. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. before before I get into how it became important today, I do like to, you know, I hope you'll let, indulge my uh, my yes. geeky side a bit and go over a little bit of the history of how we got here yes. with indices and active funds and, and why we compare the two today. Because at, at Root, I think a lot of us are just intellectually curious people and we, we, we like to find answers and, and use data to to help solve puzzles. Uh, and I think if you look historically, I mean, look, people have invested throughout history. You can go back, I think, to the Neolithic era, last thing I read, which is a lot of weird history, <laughs> around you know people diversifying portfolios of grain and other minerals they traded. So this, this diversification story that really goes way back. Um, fast forward a little bit, you'll, you'll find stock exchanges have been around for about 500 years at this point, you know, first ones emerging in Europe. And, and then by the, by the 18th century, you started to see some diversified funds as well. And so you, this, this is a landscape that is not entirely new, although it has grown. Late 1880s uh, eight or so, in 1800s in the U.S., you start to see some closed-end funds as well. And I bring that up because around that same time, uh, 1884 to be precise, two gentlemen in the U.S., one named Charles Dow, you've probably heard that name, and the other Edward Jones, uh, they started calculating a, a composite value of 11 different stock prices. It was mostly railroads, which you know you can imagine at the time that was a big part of the market. They named that the Dow Jones Railroad Average. It was a number that they started to publish uh, in a newsletter that eventually became the Wall Street Journal. So right off the bat, we can say that there was a world with indexing and active that that existed almost 150 years ago. And of course, since then we've seen, you know, massive change, really a proliferation of active funds. And in fact, today I've you know seen papers and your listeners probably have, there are actually more active equity funds than there are stocks trading in the market. So it's a huge landscape, it's hard to navigate. Um, people are fighting tooth and nail for alpha. At the same time, you know, we at S&P, uh, among other, are, are calculating you know hundreds of thousands of indices across virtually every asset class, and so researchers and, and others and investors are using those. And you know, there's some flagship ones that people are familiar with, like the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500. The latter of which really uh, started to you know, launched this index revolution in the 1970s when you started to see the first index fund. And so suddenly it was no longer just academics. It was really actually being able to invest in indices and active. And a lot of other funds have clearly followed. And long story short, as more and more people began to embrace indexing over the last 30 years or so with the rise of ETFs, uh, you know, and, and the movement away from certain you know, higher fee products, um, there's been a lot of questions about performance. That brings us to SPIVA. So in 2002, uh, 20 years ago at the end of last year, our researchers launched the SPIVA reports in re- response to these kinds of common questions. You know, How often does active management outperform indexes? Um, SPIVA is really a regular series of research reports now comparing these performances of actively managed funds to you know, what we and others consider appropriate benchmarks in different markets around the world, including Canada, but also the United States and Europe. And in fact, we have uh, at this stage nine different reports we do that cover you know, every continent except Antarctica last time I checked. Uh, and so we have active managers really f- virtually everywhere um, in the major markets around the world and in, in fixed income and equity, et cetera. And the purpose of these scorecards 
is to take a really um, an objective data-driven view on the relative performance of active and passive. They do this by uh, you know, comparing how active funds have performed over different short and long-term time horizons. And I don't know that anyone knew at the time in 2002 how influential they'd become, but I think you heard from you know, both Anu and, and me that you know, they were a big part of, of, of our careers uh, even before we landed here at S&P Dow Jones. And one time, final thing about Spiva that I think is important, and the reason it it's persists and is quoted often, is that you know we publish these results on a regular schedule. So at this point, it's every six months we uh, we do a mid year and then we do an end of year report uh, that take into account consistent elements of methodology, uh, and those include survivorship. In other words, you know we're going to look at the landscape that existed X years ago and which funds have survived since then and not. We also look at style consistency, you know, value versus growth. Uh, we, we use asset-weighted returns, so that way you know, funds that are more popular can play a bigger role. We show those data. And finally, we, we look at things from an apples to apples perspective. So you're really comparing managers to a, a fair, appropriate benchmark uh, using a you know, third-party data source that others could could choose to replicate if they wanted to. I think that's kind of how you approach science, you know, whether it's middle school or or advanced, you know, stages like we're at here. We, we, we want things to be transparent and and clear to the readers uh, and to really everyone who's consuming these reports that, you know, they can have some, some confidence in where the results are coming from. And the bottom line is I think that kind of transparency and consistency and the fact that we've used the same approach for 20 years makes it now a a really robust data set, set that's followed by uh, many people in the industry. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, myself being one of those people that loves to kind of follow it. Um, anyway, I wanted to um, kind of jump on a, a word that uh, Joe mentioned, which was alpha. And for anyone listening, you know, what does that mean? Especially when we're thinking about, you know, um, I, I think often of young investors or people who want to get started investing and they are heavily influenced either by social media or just information online, like, you know, very different than in the past where it's just like you hear your neighbor, oh, he made some money on some stocks. Now it's just everyone in the world, it seems like you're being influenced with this idea of you can earn higher returns. Why wouldn't you do? Do you want to kind of share a little bit more about what Spiva can be used in terms of a resource to really understand, um, is this realistic, these expectations of earning significantly more than the, you know, average returns? Sure. It's an excellent question, right? When when you talk about younger investors and, and you heard Joe give you the history, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we've been producing this for more than 20 years. And, and you mentioned the word alpha, which is an important, you know, concept. And, and when you think about it, we've been doing this for more than 20 years. So the natural question is, why is it so hard? Right? Why is it so hard for, for active managers to, to outperform? They, they have the resources, they're, they're smart people. So, so why is it hard? And I think the alpha question goes to an important concept, an important reason for why it is so hard. And, and that's really just the professionalization of the industry, if you think about the history and, and where we are right now. And, and if we go back, say let's go back to the, you know, the 1950s, for example, if you were a portfolio manager and you were trading with someone, perhaps on the other side, it was someone who was a retail investor who maybe didn't have the same resources as you. But that started to change uh, in the 1970s as, as professionals started competing against each other. And then the game got harder. So, so what happens as a result of that 
is when funds started to move from active to index, the least capable active managers lost the most assets. So as a result of that, the quality of the survivors goes up and it enhances market efficiency. So it's important to understand uh, that investment management is a zero-sum game and, and there's no natural source of outperformance or alpha. So if I'm going to win on the on one side, on the other side, someone's got to lose. It's really a zero-sum game. So, so that's very important to understand. And another important concept that, that you know, I would recommend for, for younger investors is just cost, right? So if, if you think about it, active managers generally have higher costs than that of passive for, say, you know, trading and overhead and, and research. And, and we do a study at S&P where we try to estimate uh, the fee savings that, that investors have achieved. And what we do is it's very simple. So what we do is we take the difference between the average expense ratio of active and index equity mutual funds, and we do it every year. We take that difference and we multiply it by the total value of indexed assets for our S&P 500, S&P 400, and S&P 600 index, so that way we've covered the cap spectrum. And then we aggregate those results. And when you aggregate the results over 26 years, the number comes out to roughly $403 billion, if you think about that. So, so that's definitely a big number, right? But, but I always like to tell people that this number actually understates the full cost savings because we've only included a few of our indices at S&P, and, and we certainly haven't included the entire industry. So the actual savings uh, that index investors have achieved is actually much larger, uh, if you think about it. So, you know, we've talked about cost, we, we've talked about, you know, alpha, you know, that th there's no natural supply of alpha. A final important headwind, an important reason why it's so hard is really an underappreciated concept, and, and it's called the skewness of, mm -hmm. of equity returns. So, if, you know, if you think back to your math class or your statistics class, you know, if you think of a normal distribution, stocks don't work like that, right? A, a stock can go down hundred percent, but it can go up by much more. So what that means is that outperformance is driven by a, a few winners, a few stocks. And, and the way we, we measure it is, is to look at whether the average uh, return is greater than the median constituent return. So, so skewness is, is a very important concept. And it's important because what it does is if outperformance is driven by a few winners, it can hinder more concentrated active uh, portfolios. And, and, and we see this you know, across regions. For example, in the US, we saw that you know, over the past 32 years, 28 of them were positively skewed for the S&P 500. If you look at Canada, for example, with the TSX Composite, we saw that 20 out of the past 25 years were positively skewed. So very prevalent across uh, equities. Uh, across most regions. So, you know, just to sum up, there, there's really three key reasons. There's, there's the professionalization of the industry, there's cost, there's the skewness of the equity returns, which really show why it's so hard. It's so hard to beat the market. And, and SPIVA, as, as you've heard Joe talk about, is really evidence of this. And, and if you look at the, the long-term statistics, the long-term statistics tend to be bleaker. Uh, with 91% and 95% of our large cap funds underperforming over a 10 and 20 year period in the US. If you look at Canada, 85% of Canadian equity managers underperformed 
over 10 years. So the key takeaway is that most active managers underperform most of the time. Yeah. I think what's interesting, and Joe, I want to kind of hear your thoughts on this, is what I often hear, maybe what you often maybe see when you're you're talking to people or, or seeing conversations on uh, conversations online is that people will look at a stat like 80% of, you know, active funds underperform, but they will think that, but I can be part of that 20% that is in the underperformer. I'm curious, can you share some stats that you have from, you know, several, you know, decades of, of Spiva scorecards um, to kind of maybe, you know, give people that idea that, listen, it's unlikely that you may be in the 20% or maybe you are, but you shouldn't bet all your, <laughs> your eggs on that, you know? Yes. And, and I think, you know, a new hit on some of these points that I think are worth underscoring to begin. And, and one of the things she talked about was the fees that, that factor into this over mm-hmm. time, right? That fee adding up periods. Yeah, I think recently you had uh, Peter Bink-Murtry on, if yep. I'm not mistaken, talking about fees. And, and it's just, even, even if you're selling a mutual fund, you know, there's a some a charge on the back end of there that all of these things add together to impact that return and really make that hurdle higher for the act fund to outperform. So, you know, I'll touch on some of the numbers from last year and then how those trace back over the decades, like you said, right? like a new mentioned, you know, 95% or so of, of, of U.S. large cap funds underperformed the S&P 500 over the past 20 years. That That's a striking number, but it's not really an anomaly. It's actually pretty representative of what we see across regions over those long time horizons. The, the three things I'd say is that first, you know, gross of fees, most managers underperform most of the time. And so even on a one-year basis, it's relatively rare, but not not unheard of that, you know, more than half of managers um, will underperform in various asset classes. And second, that tendency to underperform rises as the observation period gets longer. And, and third, when good performance does occur, right? And so this is where folks would say, and well, we only, we only pick the best managers. We obviously don't pick average is that it doesn't tend to persist. And we can talk a bit more about that in a minute, but I think it is, as has been touched on, it's a, it's really hard to achieve outperformance, not impossible, but there's these headwinds like the skew and you talked about the fees and the professionalization, those kind of big three. Uh, but what was interesting about last year, 2022, was that I think for the first time in a long time, you had a period that many active managers have said they, they needed, right? When when everything was being driven, not everything, but a large part of the return driven by, you know, a, a small number of very mega stocks, you know, FANGs being part of that discussion, the, you know, quantitative easing and money flowing into markets. Uh, the, the argument was in, a, in these bull markets with such high, high skew or concentration of returns, it's hard to, to stand out. So what did 2022 offer? Well, kind of everything opposite, right? Yeah. Markets were generally down. You had, you know, the 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 TSX composite down almost 6%, the S&P down about 18%. You had higher dispersion, which is really the difference between the best and worst performing stocks. You know, active managers like that because if if they make good picks, they're more rewarded for it. Um, you had higher volatility, and finally, you had that skew situation actually reverse. Right? In the case in Canada, for example, and in the U.S., you had nearly 60% of stocks over the, the course of the year outperforming the index itself. 
And that was happening because many of those big names were starting to pull back. And so, you know, you could throw a dart at the proverbial dartboard <laughs> and, and be more than 50% likely to pick an outperformer, right? So what happened in that context? You know, last year in Canada, I'll share a few stats with you. In the, in the Canadian equity category, you had 52% of managers underperformed their benchmark. So just over half, right? In the U.S., it was about uh, U.S. equity, 58%. So, you know, somewhere between 15, 60% below. Over 10-year horizon becomes more uh, about 85%. Uh, same thing in the you know, dividend and income category, close to, to you know, 72% over 10 years. Now, what I also think is interesting and, and a new, you know, I'll say she was probably one of the better EM managers out there when she was doing this job. But people talk about asset classes like uh, small caps and, and EM or international, for example, where, uh, you know, a manager's skills should be more pronounced. Um, we, we don't see the data necessarily to support that in, in U.S. Uh, or in Canadian small and mid-cap equity. You had 98% of managers underperformed over 10 years. Uh, in global equity, it's 97% over 10 years. And so um, the, the last thing I'll say on, on this uh, to get to that point around, you know, um, being able to pick and, and, and lasting, and you made a point about persistence, right? Funds that are liquidation and survivorship and that sort of thing. Over 10 years, uh, ending in December of last year, 45% of Canadian equity funds were either merged or liquidated. So if you put yourself back in 2012, you'd have to say uh, with high confidence that you would not only pick that, you know, 55% of funds that would survive, but um, some percentage among them that would do it persistently. And on that last point, we find that uh, the, the we publish a companion piece called Persistence Scorecards that uh, talk a little more about those sort of data um, and how well managers can keep up their outperformance over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like an argument I hear a lot from, you know, uh, portfolio managers, advisors, especially people that I usually talk to the people who are working with these people and aren't necessarily happy with um, the, you know, performance or the outcome of their portfolios. And often the argument is, um that if you are unhappy with your your current portfolio, they'll just suggest another one and another one. And it's probably because they know that, oh, we're just going to, you know, rebrand this or, re, you know, repackage this and just move you into a new portfolio and, and completely ignoring the fact that, you know, for years, they're probably selling a portfolio that was underperforming. Um, anyone want to kind of come back to you? Like I kind of mentioned, a, a lot of people still uh, think that, you know, either index investing is too simple, too boring, or it's a, a trend, or that it's, you know, manipulating the markets. And, and not everyone can be an index fund investor, because if they do, it will just um, kind of wreak havoc on everything. And, uh, you know, they most, you know, lots of people would prefer doing active investing, because they do feel like they would be in that high percentage of people that will uh, be able to outperform the index. Why do you think this is like more from the investor perspective do you think it's just blind optimism do you think it's because they just you know they just don't want to be average i hear that yeah. a lot people don't like the term average and they don't want to be considered average <laughs> i think you know you're you're exactly right and i i think to to examine this it's important if we look at the behavioral biases and and tendencies that we have as investors and just as humans right and you know it's fascinating because investment management 
is not like other professions because mm-hmm. in other professions, the harder you work, the better you're likely to get, right? So yeah. for example, you know, I'm a tennis player. So the more I practice tennis, the better I'm likely going to be. Or, you know, for your Canadian audience, for the, for the ice hockey fans out there, the more you practice, the better you're likely going to get. That's not the case with investment management. And, and you hit the nail on the head when you said that people want to be above average and, and people want to win. And a, a common misconception historically was that indexing was settling for average. But the history and, and the SPIVA data that, that you hear us talking about has clearly shown that that's not the case. And then SPIVA is evidence of that. And, and I do like to point out that there are managers, and, and Joe referenced this earlier, there are managers that do outperform, and, and there's a minority of them. But it's certainly rare uh, to see the consistent outperformance. And, and you heard Joe talk about the, the persistent scorecards. So what that really means is that skill, skill is hard to find. And, and we know this um, from our persistence scorecards. And over time, skill can persist, but luck dissipates. And I think that's key to note when looking at our SPIVA scorecards as well as our persistence scorecard. Uh, another point to touch on is just to thinking about style bias. Uh, for example, you know, you heard Joe talking about some of the Canadian stats. What we historically have seen is that Canadian equity managers tended to do better when U.S. equities were outperforming. So that's something to keep in mind as well are those what's going on under the hood of the portfolio and where are the managers tilting outside of their benchmarks. And and it's important to distinguish that uh, from true skill. And and we've talked about, you know, active. We've done a lot of studies about, you know, favorable conditions for active for example, Joe talked about dispersion earlier, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we got that in 2022. We got the higher dispersion. And, you know, that greater dispersion is important because it means greater opportunity for stock pickers with skill uh, to add value. And, and that's a very important caveat because what people tend to forget is if you don't have the skill, there's also greater opportunity for embarrassment, right? So that's always something important to remember. And, and it's not always a guarantee. So for to give you an example, 2021 was one of the high dispersion years, and we still saw 85% of U.S. large cap active managers uh, underperform. But historically, we've seen that more active managers underperformed in, in low dispersion environments. So it's definitely something, a, a condition uh, to keep an eye on. Uh, you, you heard Joe talk about the mega caps earlier, you know, Shopify in Canada was a good example of this, right? Because Mm -hmm. when the stock was doing well, managers who were underweight got hurt and vice versa. When it plummeted last year, managers who were underweight actually benefited. So the the influence of large cap stocks is very relevant uh, as well. And, And there's different lenses. You know, we've talked about volatility and dispersion. We've talked about mega caps. You can also look at market conditions for active uh, from a factor lens, for example, historically, we've seen that fewer active managers underperformed in the worst environments for low volatility. And what that suggests is that active managers as a group tend to be underweight on the least volatile stocks, uh, which is interesting. So it's helpful. Uh, you know, Joe mentioned this earlier from doing this for more than 20 years. Every year that we do this, we just get more data at our fingertips to understand, you know, what are the potential favorable conditions? And and 2022, 
you, you know, you tended to, you got the higher dispersion, you got the underperformance of, of the mega caps, you got a down market, uh, which is also relevant because, in a, you know, in a down market, active managers can hold cash, right, if the market declines and, and gain that advantage. Uh, but still, overall, you had all of those things. And we still saw that 51% underperformed in the U.S. for large caps, and we saw 52% underperform in Canada. So that really tells you how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, another. I was just thinking of another argument that I remember hearing too is when there is a situation where active funds are doing better um, than expected, or there's more funds that are outperforming um, the index. That's usually, you know, a selling point. It's like, well, look at us. Look at this fund. It did really well this year, and yet they won't necessarily also point to the fact that maybe the fund didn't do well in the past five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, or that it didn't even exist. It's a brand new fund, so there's no data to back it up. And when we're thinking about investing, I think it's really important to remember we're not doing this for just one year. We're doing this for hopefully years, you know, into the future, including while we're retired. So you have to think long term. But I'm curious, too, do you get ever arguments from people being like, well, what's the point of looking at historical returns because they're no, you know, guarantee or or indication of what could happen in the future? Does anyone want to kind of jump on that? Yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at it to start. I'm sure I will have plenty to say, but this, you know, anything it's questions with future in them are always uh, are always sensitive. But you know, I think what yeah, the past past not being precedent that's a well well uh, well known phrase. And I think again, going back to you know survivorship data and persistence, it, it, this totally feeds into that uh, dialogue. Because it's really all about, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, as we say, right? And I think the thinking about the biases, you know, put yourself in the position, let's say, ten years ago or five years ago, as an investor, uh, would you be able to select the best funds? And you could say, well, sure, I'd pick the top quartile ones, of course. Okay, um, you know, I like to eat, and I, I visited a town I used to live in, and I, I was excited about some restaurants that I discovered were gone, right? And this is, you'll catch this analogy in a minute but it, it inspired me to look like well what is the survival rate of restaurants right and, and you know before all the closures related to pandemic issues and just in general you'd find that 60 uh, percent of restaurants actually fail after just one year right and after 80 percent uh or after five years 80 percent are gone right it's kind of similar to what we're seeing in these funds i mean that first year rates much higher in restaurants but you see the point that you can't it's hard to predict even places you like they just don't make it for a variety of reasons and i think the investor lands is um, no different. Now, when you think about the short term, and Anu touched on this in terms of what managers do, and she talked about Shopify, how a, st- a certain stock can make a big difference. You know, some things that we found in 2022 uh, were a bit interesting, right? In Mexico, for example, we look at equity managers there and found that, you know, more than half of them outperformed the index. And when I started to dive into the holdings, I found that Virtually all of the top quartile uh, funds were holding things that were not in the benchmark at all, or in sometimes not even in the same asset class, like fixed income ETFs, or they held uh, you know different kinds of securities outside of their markets, uh, which is fine. But you need to know that as a consumer and think, is that um, you know is that repeatable? Same thing in you know South Africa, fixed income managers holding you know kind of longer term bonds in a short term uh, category, kind of getting outside of that risk range that you would expect as an investor. And the, the reason I bring that up is because it, it it may not be persistent. And so to bring it back to Canada, 
again, the persistence scorecards that we produce typically follow SPIVA, and we'll see them in the next month or so. But we, the last period we, we covered was through June of, of 2022. And I, you know, I'll give you a quiz here. If you looked at the top quartile managers um, as of June of 2020, right? So over the previous 12 months in the top quartile, you know, how many of those, you know, what percentage of those managers do you think stayed there for the next two years? Uh, I don't know, 50%. That's just a wild yeah. guess. That's generous. I'm not going to ask you because she knows the answer. It's 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 actually zero, right? It oh drops off quite dramatically. You'll see this in other places where you maybe, you know, some subset make it first year and the second year they diminish. It's it it drops off dramatically out of that top quartile. There's this, a big reversion effect that we see, you know, virtually everywhere we run these reports. Um, it's the same thing in global equity, U.S. equity. No funds maintained the top half performance over three 12-month periods. So now we're not even talking top quartile, we're just talking top half, right? And the only exception was international equity where, you know, 12% of funds stayed in that top quartile over over three one-year periods. But again, you have to go back and ask yourself, well, could, could I have selected those ahead of time, right? And and I'll leave you with, if, if you're not sure about that or overly confident, I'll leave you with one more stat, not from the finance world, which is that, you know, and I'm sure this has been replicated, but there was an old uh, psychological study back in the 80s of, of students uh, who were drivers, college students, and they asked, you know, how, how many of you would rate yourself well above average uh, in your driving skills? And the answer was 90% of them said they were well above <laughs> average. So mm-hmm. um, I've been driving around lately. I don't think that's correct. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you, buyer beware when it comes to assessing your own abilities to, right, to, to predict mm-hmm. the future. Mm-hmm. I guess with, with all this kind of information and all the, the data that you guys have shared, and thank you so much, why, you know, what would your perspective be on? Like for me, obviously, I've got a huge bias that I'm a passive investor and I think it's like one of the best ways to invest. That doesn't mean that I don't sometimes dabble and get, you know, caught into the peer pressure of it all and have some individual stocks that, of course, have, you know, been cut in half in terms of value. So, you know, that's a learning. Le- I mean, you know, you, you just can't help it. You're human and, you know, that these things happen. But when it comes to, you know, whether someone wants to get started and they're considering active versus passive and there's so much information out there, there's so many opinions out there. What would you want people to know about, you know, some of the benefits, I guess, of, of active or some of the things to be aware of if they want to still go that active route? Anu, did you, yeah. uh, you want to kind of yeah. take on this? Yeah. I think that that's definitely an interesting question. It's a great point going back to the human element and behavioral biases that we talked about earlier, right? And I think patience, patience and and courage is key. And and we wrote a paper a couple of years ago called um, Courage, Confidence, and and, uh, Conviction. It was like the three C's. And it was really about having the patience uh, to sustain that long run out performance. Because like we talked about, no one has a crystal ball. And I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Joe doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know what's going to happen in the future, which is why it's so tough. And if you know now, um, you know, what, you know, if you knew then what, you know, you wanted to know now and you had that hindsight uh, advantage, it would have been tough if you think about some of the stock winners uh, that did really well over the past 20, 25 years, it would have been really tough to, to hold on to them because even in the long run, they didn't win. 
over the over the long run, and and they did outperform. But you had to go through a lot of periods of pain, right? There, it was definitely、mm-hmm. a roller coaster. If you think of the roller coaster analogy, right? And there were ebbs and flows. And and you know the question to ask yourself is: Do you have the stomach to to hang on through the roller coaster, right? And and it's it's easier said than done,、uh, which is why you know the beauty of indexing is really admitting ignorance and saying, I don't know. I don't know what the next winner is going to be, so you know I'm going to have diversification on my side because I don't know what those precious few winners are going to be. Yeah, yeah, Joe. Yeah, the only thing I'd add—that's a great, great point. And the only thing I add—it reminds me. I think it's attributed to Harry Markowitz saying diversification is the only free lunch in, in investing, right? Whether or not he said it, it, it still applies here. And I think that you're you're finding that in indices, but the, the the only point I'd make on top of that is that. You know, there's a wave. There's kind of an evolution happening here that we really haven't talked about in this. And when we talk indices versus active, it, it kind of ignores, to some degree, the fact that active is、uh, incorporating indices now more than ever. I mean, what we've seen for years, and I'm sure you're, you're acutely. Close to this is the rise of you know ETF models, for example, or or managers like I mentioned in some markets using、uh, index products inside of their active funds, right? And so they're finding a way to maybe move away from some of the idiosyncratic risks of of this or that single stock, but using indexes and their sort of built-in diversification benefits、um, as tools in an active asset allocation or portfolio. And so where that brings me is you know. An investor、uh, doesn't need to say I'm either going to be active or passive. It's really about building that that whole pie with pieces that、uh, they can manage and and have a little more,、uh, you know, a little more control over from a diversification standpoint.、Uh, hopefully, at a lower cost along the way. And I think that's the revolution we're seeing now. Yeah, it'll be. It's been an interesting time, even for me. I've been. You know, in this kind of personal finance world for over a decade now, and it's been interesting to see the evolution of、um, information and resources, but also just yeah, funds. I mean, when I was in my I guess mid twenties and was getting started with investing in Canada, at least it was very difficult to buy index funds. There was one discount brokerage, and it was just index mutual funds, and it was it was a whole bunch of paperwork. And I'm like, well, gosh. And then there was one bank that offered them、um, kind of kind of like a, a robo advisor、um, a little bit, but it was still index mutual funds. And now, cut to ten years later, and you have so many options. So for me, that it's an exciting thing. It's great to have options, and and but you know. With that, you know the feedback I get from people is there's too much information, there's too many options. Where do I go? So I, I hope people get a lot out of this、uh, this interview. I, I sure did. I really、uh, appreciate you both coming on and、uh, really recommend everyone checking out、um, the Spiva website and all the great resources on there.、Um, is there any particular resource or, or, or anything besides the ones that you mentioned already that people should take a look out、uh, at after listening to this episode? I, I think we covered the, you know, the Spiva scorecards, and and you know, Joe talked about how we do this globally、uh, across regions. We are literally in the thick of it right now. So you know, we've released U.S. and Canada among other regions.、Uh, so definitely would recommend going to our S and P Dow Jones Indices website,、uh, where we have a dedicated Spiva landing page, so you can digest, you know, all the data, all the statistics. Uh, we also have an indexology blog site、uh, where we regularly blog about these topics, about key themes.
um, that are going on, trends within the active versus passive space. Uh, so those are some of the resources that I'd recommend for more information. Awesome. Joe, is there anything else you'd want to kind of share? Yeah, if that's not easy enough, just Google SPIVA or Google Indexology. We've been <laughs> around doing this long enough. They they should be the top result. And you'll uh, open the door right there mm-hmm. to all kinds of treasures. Oh, yes. So many treasures. Well, thank you again, Joe and Andy, for joining me on the show. It was a pleasure having you both here. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. And that was episode 370 with my wonderful guests, Anu Gonti and Joseph Nelson from S&P Dow Jones Indices. If you want to learn more about all the things that we went through, I highly recommend checking out the show notes for this episode where I'm going to link to everything very easily. Uh, and you can find their you know, socials, uh, some of those resources we chatted about. Just go to jessicamorehouse.com slash 370. And if you're ever wondering where can I find resources or, or, or the information about whatever episode I listen to, you can find it either by going to Jessica Morehouse house.com slash podcast or jessicamorehouse.com slash whatever the number of that particular episode is. And if you don't remember, sometimes I get emails or DMs asking, hey, I listened to this episode with this guest. I forget their name, but it was about this topic. Honestly, I don't hate getting those messages because I will know what you're talking about and then can direct you to the show notes for that episode. So always happy to get those messages if you're if you're thinking of, uh, you know, chatting with me. Happy to chat. Okay, so, 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 uh, just a little update um, to end this episode on. Uh, Only two weeks left of this season of the show. Season 16 is capping it at... mid-June, which is usually what I did, but the past few years have been going all the way into July somehow. And uh, this year, I'm like, you know what? I I need uh, to wrap this up a little bit sooner because I need to, A, have a little bit of time for myself during the summer to relax and visit some family in Vancouver, as I always do. But also, I have a book to write. And if you were new to uh, the show, that is the big news I've been sharing on the past couple episodes. I am in the thick of writing my first ever book with HarperCollins, and I'm so excited and going through all the feelings. Like, if you want to know what it's like to get a book deal and then have to write a book, it's a roller coaster of emotions. It is so exciting and thrilling. And, like, you know, this was the biggest goal I've had, and I didn't think I'd ever achieve it. And then also, you know, a lot of bouts of self-doubt and imposter syndrome and being like, oh my God, is what I'm writing total trash? And is everyone just going to hate what I wrote? And just like starting to go on Goodreads and read comments and, and criticisms of some of the books that I absolutely love and seeing, oh my gosh, if people hate, you know, Brene Brown, they are not going to like me because Brene is amazing. So, you know, just a lot of ups and downs of, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And oh my gosh, this is terrifying. And I just want to go in a bit of a cocoon and, you know, never come out. But that's that's the writer's life. That's the real writer's life. Everything that you thought it was like I used to have the fantasy of like that money love actually of going to like the what is it, the Italian countryside and writing my great novel. Yeah, no, I'm like literally on my couch in a blanket laptop on me and just trying to write <laughs> with a messy bun. And, you know, it's not glamorous, guys. It is not glamorous, but hey, we're getting through it. And I'm really excited. I'm by the end of June, because I've got a schedule because obviously I'm a nerd. I mean, we know this. I have a money podcast, but I've got a spreadsheet to keep me all in line with my word count and all the chapters. And I should be halfway through uh, the book writing process or not the book writing process, but me writing the book 
by uh, end of June. So that's very exciting. So that's what's basically been uh, taking over my life, which is why I've been a little bit more quiet on social media and the YouTube channel, just because, hey, you know, it's hard to come out with new ideas and content for all of those different platforms when I am really my brain is just focused on this one really big daunting task. Um, but uh, besides, you know, me wrapping up the show uh, soon, another thing I want to just remind you of again, if you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes I put out talking about the book, I am gathering interviews, I'm gathering interviews from people like you to potentially include in my book, I'm specifically right now looking for someone um, to share a story with me who has uh, a history, a family history of wealth. I know that sounds odd, but there's a lot of focus of, you know, poverty and not having money in the book. I want to show both sides because money is difficult, whether you have it or you don't. And I realized I actually don't really have anyone in my personal life. And I've asked a lot of friends and yeah, everyone I know, no, 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 there's no wealth. There's no wealth. So if you know anyone or if you were that person, so we can kind of dive in. You can be anonymous. You can be anonymous. If you know anybody, please go to jessicamorehouse.com slash interview. You can apply or get your friend to apply. Um, I really, really the purpose of, of kind of sharing that part of it is to show that you can still have, you know, shame and anxiety and negative feelings or just like, you know, not feel good about money, even if you came from wealth or even at some point in your family history, there was wealth and then maybe someone in your family lost it all or something like that. I'm trying to get all these different types of stories so we can, uh, you know, ultimately understand that there's so many different paths people take and everyone kind of feels the same way about money. I don't know too many people even who came from money that feel really amazing about it all the time. So if you know anybody, please let me know, because honestly, I've been I've been searching and it is it, it's, it's been difficult. It's been difficult. But even if you don't have that kind of history, if you also just you know want to be included, maybe you have an interesting story that you can share, go to jessicamurhouse.com slash interview and you can apply. And hopefully, you know, if it works out, I'll get in touch with you. Okay, so that is it for me. So to tease next week's episode, I've got a friend who's been on the show. I think this is going to be number four, which is a rarity. I think there's only a couple people that have been on the show that many times uh, besides, you know, Shannon Lee Simmons, who was recently on the show again. I've got Erin Lowry from Broke Millennial back on the show. She has a workbook coming out and it's always such a delight to have her on the show. So join me next Wednesday. And then the following week, um, I've got a two episode week to wrap up this season. Um, I'm going to save who is going to be on the show, but it's a great week. And also don't forget, I am giving away a ton of books and I'm going to be wrapping up this book giveaway very soon. Go to jessicamorehouse.com slash contest to find out all the books I'm currently giving away. Do not delay. I'm going to be closing this contest in the next few weeks and selecting winners and shipping off a bunch of books. So please do so. Okay, that is it for me. Thank you so much for listening. Big shout out to my podcast editor, Matt Rideout, and I will see you back here next Wednesday. Have a good rest of your week. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.